Hello, and welcome to Still No Plan. I'm Jordan Granger. And I'm Autumn Webb, and we are so happy you're here. Okay, so that was an amazing episode. We can get into that in a minute. But first, what are you reading right now? I am reading right now The Art of Seduction by Mm. Robert Greene. And Mm. it is so good. (laughs) It is not about like sex necessarily. It's more so about like how all of your relationships, work, personal, everyone is all like there's a hint of seduction in all of them. Like to be an attractive person, whether that's sexually or like like generally a seductive person who people want to hang around you and people want to be Mm -hmm. with you and like how to kind of tune into those more attractive and like charismatic traits and how to kind of turn down some of the more like self-centered or less attractive like traits socially. And it's cool because he talks about all these like different types of seducers. And so each type, he has like a long like chapter about it, but then there's also like, he goes through key characters in history that we know about and like what kind of seducer they were and like really outlining it. Mm. So it talks about like Marilyn Monroe and like Cleopatra and all of these like seducers from different types, like different eras. And so it's like history, but it's also like, I don't know. It's just a really, really fun, interesting read, like about social dynamics. And I also love history. So it kind of gives me that little fix. And, um, it's just fun. And now it's making me like reevaluate the way I act and treat people. I'm like, I want to be someone that people want to be around and like enjoy being around. And um, one of the things is talking about like, there's one seducer called the siren and the siren is known for their like voice. And I'm like, Mm. people always comment on my voice. Maybe I should really tune into that. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm trying to work on it, but it's honestly really hard to work on the voice. So, so, uh, but yeah, so it's a really fun read. And honestly, Robert Greene, all of his yeah. books are kind of like that. Like he has a history tie into it. And um, I love I Robert Greene. Yeah. So I like um, it. Okay, great. Adding it to my list. Yeah, Robert Greene's incredible. He's so smart and just well-spoken. I actually haven't read any of his books, but I've heard of him on a lot of podcasts. And like the way he speaks is incredible. Mm-hmm. I'm sure his writing is even better. I know. I did a bad of- thing though. I've like tuned into my bedtime routine so hard that I start to read. I read like two pages and my body's like bedtime. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I am too. I have to read like dumb books right before bed, like my rom-coms because they're just kind of like, Uh it basically all it does is like hypnotize me to sleep. (laughs) I know. I can't like like, read for education before bed. (laughs) Cause I've been reading this book so slow. Like I've literally, I read like three pages a night and then I'm just ready to go to bed. So I think I'll have to start doing that. Like read this kind of book, like in the day on my lunch or like something like that. And then read a fun, like nonfiction or fiction. I always forget whatever the fun one is um, before Before bed. bed. (laughs) Whatever the fun. Yeah. I always remember because it's, I just think it's fact or fiction is like the the phrase. Oh, true, <laughs> so, true, true. <laughs> so fact is the other one, and fiction is fake. Is the fun one. <laughs> um, well, I'm reading. Well, I'm listening to it, but I'm reading, listening to the Molecule of More still, which mm. I it's I just think everyone needs to read it. It's like it's so basically good. explains all of human behavior. I'm learning even more, and like as someone with ADHD. 
I've learned that I'm dopamine deficient or I have like a dysregulated dopamine system. And so that tends to show up in a lot of different things like addictive behaviors. And one of the things that I just learned is like obsessive sugar cravings, which I have, like I have the gnarliest sweet tooth. Mm-hmm. And so it's really, I've also read like people who go on medication to support their ADHD tend to have like a lower sweet tooth, which is just fascinating. And it talks about everything from like how like you can understand people's political views and like guess people's political views based on how dopaminergic they are. Mm -hmm. And you can guess like how successful a relationship is going to be. And it talks about like affairs, like the reason they seem so enticing is because dopamine drives them. But then like when you leave your current marriage and go for the affair, oftentimes the relationship isn't successful because it's not actually the person you are with. It's like your inability to switch from being driven by dopamine. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, it's like, like I added it in my book or in my book list for like sobriety because it talks a lot, like it explains a lot about addiction, but it doesn't directly talk about addiction. Um, But it literally explains like, all of human behavior. And it is the most fascinating book. Mm-hmm. I know you told me it was good. So I downloaded Audible and I powered through it. I'm going to re-listen to it because I feel like there is just so much in that book to absorb. And you're right. It really does explain like all human behavior, like all of it and like falling in love and falling out of love and affairs and politics and all this stuff. I don't know. It's I think it's an incredible book too. And I'm probably going to re-listen to it. I re-listened to Atomic Habits too. Cause I just feel like there's so much to absorb in these books that you got to hear it twice. I'm like, take you notes. Have I to. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so, it even explains like the feeling that we feel now of like being incapable of feeling satisfied with where you're at. And like, I think that's so prevalent in your twenties of like, you're kind of in this transition phase. And so everything that's enticing is like ahead of you, like Mm -hmm. further in your career journey, like a stronger relationship, things like if you're in a current relationship, like wanting to be engaged, it's like all of that is driven by dopamine and it's so fascinating. And like, as someone, I think it's so important if you've ever, which is most of us like struggled with that type of crisis or even just depression in general, like understanding why you're so dissatisfied with like your current state, no matter what your current state is, is like down to a chemical science. It's so fascinating. Well, also I feel like it explains so much of like consumer behavior and like how we've seen recently with TikTok blowing up in the way that it was. Mm -hmm. I feel like trend, the trend cycle is much, much, much faster. And I think so much of that is linked to dopamine too. Like, like one of my roommates is like, I, I, once I redecorate my room, then I'll be happier. Like, I'm like, your room is not redecorating your room unless it's like really, really a negative, toxic space. I don't think it's really going to make you happier. But these companies have just done such a good job because your brain is wired for it. These companies know that your brain's wired for it. And they've done such a good job making you think, once I buy this shirt, I'll be happy. Once Mm -hmm. I go to Coachella, I'll be happy. But realistically, wherever you go, there you are. And there is a certain extent of like depression because, you know, maybe in one location, you don't have a good like community or support group than you do in other location. But like, you got to figure out how to make yourself happy kind of with what you have, wherever you are, because 
wherever you go, there you are. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like that book you were reading, um, Love People Use Things. I remember so you were talking it. about, <laughs> yeah, you were talking about the difference in like want and like, and that is literally explained by dopamine and like mm-hmm. dopamine kicks off want, but it's a different system and chemi- different chemicals in your brain that that like make you like. And so that's why people have like purchase guilt and like purchase regret so often because Mm -hmm. it's literally different parts of your brain that are telling you to do those things. So like you're, if you're driven by dopamine, you're going to buy something just because you want it, not because you actually like it. And like, I think it's so important to understand that part of your chemical brain, like functionality because it it just literally explains human behavior. My therapist always tells me that I am a difficult patient because I intellectualize my issues, but I also think it's important to intellectualize your issues. Isn't it called being self-aware? Well, and I'm like, (laughs) you're a therapist. You intellectualized your issues all the way into a job. So (laughs) for me, it's like, yeah, it furthers your self-awareness and your understanding of like why you're doing something, which then helps you decide whether you want to really do that thing. Like Mm -hmm. whether, for example, like with drinking, I'm drinking again and I had a drink and I was like, it's dopamine that makes you want your next drink. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that and I was very well aware that like I didn't actually want another drink and like I honestly didn't even care about the first drink. Like, Mm -hmm. and it's just made, it's made it much more clear to me what I'm wanting in that moment, not just like, like what I need in that moment rather than like what I'm desiring. Cause I think those are such different things. I feel like also um, the book talks about how high achievers tend to be very dopaminergic. And I think, Mm -hmm. I think we were both very much that way, especially from a younger age, like pushing ourselves academically and socially to like, you know, go to rigorous school and then in school pushing ourselves. I think We've been very goal-oriented, which has tends to be like dopaminergic. And so that's something I've been trying to work on post-college is like, I think that's also probably why there's this like common like post-college depression because it you like don't have a goal anymore. Like how we were talking with Casey, mm-hmm. like there's no roadmap after college. It's like you have a yeah. very solid roadmap until you graduate. And then it's like, uh, what do I do now? Like, okay, I have the full-time job, but what else do I do? And so transitioning from like balancing the dopaminergic versus like serotoninergic, I don't know how to say it, whatever it is (laughs) to like kind of have a balance of like having enough dopamine and like playing into it enough to where you have goals and still want to do things, but then being able to appreciate them in the here and now chemicals. So I've been trying to dive into my here and now. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Someone at my work, um, my boss said it and she got it from like a higher up at the company. And she always says wallow in the success. Like whenever we do a, a launch, she'll be like, yeah, you have to wallow in the success. And she's always like, I think wallow is such a weird word to use, but I think it's so smart because it's like, when I do anything, my immediate reaction is like critique, critique and grow and like get better. And I think it's mm-hmm. so easy to like with this podcast, like we launch, then we're thinking like, what are our next steps? Like, how are we going to make this bigger and better? Like, what is the next thing? And you really do have to like literally force yourself to be like, how about we just sit and appreciate this moment for what it is? Yeah. And it's interesting that it's so hard for us, like human nature to do that. But I think it does come down to like high achievement and always wanting to be like 
next thing, next growth. Like, and I mean, that's a big thing in hustle culture right now is such a thing. And like, I think there's a, a level that's healthy of like wanting to hustle and grind and like provide for yourself. But there's mm-hmm. also a part of like, you're never going to be happy. There's no dollar amount that is going to be satisfactory if you're constantly focused on more. And like, mm-hmm. there's no follower account. There's no nothing that will make you happy if you're leaning into dopamine because dopamine's entire goal is to get more. And so Mm -hmm. you need to know how to like plug into those here and now, like be happy with what's in front of you chemicals, no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I, when I did the triathlon, I like didn't even have a sense of accomplishment from that. Like even, and I was working with that for four months and I was like putting all this effort and I was building up to it. And like, it was is a big deal was a big thing, but I literally like don't feel any sense of accomplishment from it. And I am mad at myself because I've been really trying to plug into these here and now things. And I feel like I am more present, but I just can't, I don't give myself the recognition for it. And I don't know how to change that, even though I've been actively trying to lean into these more. So still it's practice and it's not, it does not come easily, <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. Casey was amazing. So for everyone listening, it is now Happy May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month, which is a big uh, topic of interest for both Autumn and I. And this week, we get to have a conversation with Casey Taylor, who lost her brother to suicide when he was a senior in college. And a year later, took her energy and grief and put it into um, a nonprofit that's all about raising awareness and education and fundraising for research for mental health. And I was lucky enough to work with them for a little bit. I think it was like six months or a year, uh, honestly, like in the beginning of the pandemic, I think. Um, And it's an incredible organization with incredible people who really care um, definitely go check them out. Also go like donate if you want. Um, and yeah, I think the conversation with Casey is incredible. She's so insightful. Yeah. I had a lot of fun talking to her and, uh, yeah, I think it's, we barely even scratch the surface of all the stuff that we could get into with mental health and with her. And so I hope that we can have her on with her co-founder. I think that'd be really fun. Mm-hmm. And we can just get more into it because mental health is probably like the main reason why we started this podcast. And so I think it's something that we want to continue to talk about a lot because this time in your 20s and even not like life is confusing and hard and we all just need a little support to get through it. And so I think it's a really important thing to talk about and I'm glad people are talking about it more. Yeah, they have created an incredible space um, and uh, just kind of a, leaning on like peer and community support to open up the conversation around mental health in really incredible ways with specifically young men. I mean, they, they target a broad range of community, like it's open for everyone, but they put in effort to make sure it's also inclusive to young men. And it's really important. Um, and it's hard to do. And I think it's men, young men in college are, both the people who need the support maybe the most and are also the people who are not getting it maybe the most. So it's they're they're an incredible organization. It was great to talk to her. We hope you guys love it as much as we do. Thanks for listening. Okay, hello. Hi. Thank you guys for having me on today. 
Yeah. Thanks so much for coming. Um, we are super excited to have this conversation and get into mental health for Mental Health Awareness Month. It's obviously so important to you with your nonprofit, and it's been so important to Autumn and I just our whole lives struggling with different mental health things to really talk about this and understand the communities and resources that are out there. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. So if you want to start off for those listening, um, we're talking to Casey Taylor today. She's the president and founder of a nonprofit, The Scooty Fund, which focuses on educating and promoting resources for mental health. Um, If you want to kick it off, Casey, with just talking about how you started The Scooty Fund and kind of how it came to be. Yeah. So I started the Scooty Fund about four years ago, a little over four years ago, one year after my brother Will died by suicide. And it wasn't necessarily on a whim, but I definitely didn't really know the direction it would go or uh, what exactly we were trying to do besides kind of open the conversation around mental health and provide people with the tools to talk about their own mental health, share their journeys, you know, and reach out if they need help. And that kind of focus centered a lot around my story, my brother's experiences, and our co-founder Tara's experiences. She and I had both uh, struggled with mental health issues all of our young adult lives. For me, that started around the ages of 15, 16. And I really don't feel like I entered a place of recovery or I guess well-being until the time I was about 25. So about 10 years of my life, I was struggling pretty, I don't say I don't want to say severely or over-dramatize it, but I was definitely struggling with mental health stuff. And my brother, he and I were really close. So there were a few times during his college experience when I just had this gut feeling that, you know, something wasn't right. I flew up to his college once, spent a weekend with him. You know, he always said things were fine. He felt so much better after, you know, having a conversation with me or, you know, me being there in person. He never really, he didn't let anyone in about how much he was struggling or what exactly he was even struggling with. So uh, his death by suicide came as a huge shock. I remember getting the call from my mom and uh, she let me know that Will had died the night before, that his roommates had found him. And she didn't tell me it was suicide at first. So immediately I thought it had to be partying related. It had to be some kind of like drug, alcohol, combo, overdose, something And it wasn't until later that day that one of my best friends, uh, after speaking to some of his classmates, uh, let me know that it was suicide. And that was really challenging for me to accept. And so I, as a part of, you know, kind of my grieving process, there was a point that I didn't get angry with him, you know, like, like for having gone through mental health challenges myself, I know, you know, how isolating it can be, how hopeless it can feel, and how it seems like there is no better way of living or like there's nothing that's going to help this uh, sensation you're experiencing. And so it made a lot of sense to me that he was just in so much pain that he, in his mind, needed an out. What I got angry with, though, was the ways in which our society 
um, stigmatizes mental health and the ways in which we don't open up that space for conversation and the ways that I had felt, you know, going through my own stuff that I couldn't reach out for help, that it was a failure on my part to not be able to handle these things by myself. So kind of in empathizing with his, what I thought, you know, his experience may have looked like, um, I was able to kind of better have this idea of what I thought some changes might help, like the changes that I thought might help our peers. So I talked with a few people for a while. And originally, I wanted to do this like warehouse party that was mental health themed. And I'm also in the art world. So like maybe bring in like an art auction or just like some really cool event. And the more that I talked with people, especially with Tara, the more I kind of realized that what we wanted to do wasn't just a one time event. What we wanted to do was contribute to hopefully long lasting change and um, show people that the resources are out there to, you know, not be stuck in this kind of hopeless situation of anxiety or depression, or, you know, whatever the feelings and the thoughts might be, and B, to help people feel okay, reaching out for those resources themselves, and help people reach the conversation with friends to help their friends reach out for those resources, or even to be that resource. So we really started kind of just with this general idea of changing the culture around mental health. And over time, it's grown to, I think, be a well-running organization that really focuses on in-person events to kind of open that conversation. Social media, which Jordan, you are a huge part of in kind of kicking that off and like bringing that vision to life and fundraising for research and resources. Um, So that's really the general overview. It started from this event that just had me kind of feeling helpless to do anything about and ended with this, uh, with contributing to a movement around um, shifting culture of mental health. Yeah, I think that is, first of all, thank you so much for sharing and being so vulnerable. This is obviously a hard topic to talk about and sensitive to talk about. So really, thank you for sharing. This is really important. And suicide is obviously heartbreaking at any age. And I think it's even more heartbreaking when it's people that are young. Because like you were saying, you struggle with mental health until, I mean, always, but like really from 16 to 25. I feel like when you're 21, 20, feel, things feel so big and you don't realize that like life gets better. You have more power the older you get, like you're more confident, like life continues to get better if you can just like push through the hard times to see that. I think it's really beautiful what you guys are doing and how you guys are framing this conversation to be more gender neutral. I think it's really important too, because I've always thought like, I, f- I feel like I'm so grateful to be a woman, to be able to, in society, to feel these emotions, to talk about these emotions. I feel like it's so hard for men to do that. So how are you guys like gearing the conversation to be more gender neutral and like open for men to kind of bring their feelings to the table too? That's a really great discussion point. First of all, I do want to acknowledge the kind of issue of age. I think that kind of that young adulthood especially the transition periods, you know, when we're moving from high school to college from for those people who go to college from college to quote unquote, the real world. I think we've been given these ideas for a long time, at least within my community, 
that your identity and value are tied to certain things. So I know like with my brother, he was having a really hard time as a senior in college um, with the idea of, you know, getting a job that was quote unquote good enough or entering a career when he really didn't know what he wanted to do. Um, so I think, you know, as we're moving through young adulthood, those things feel so big and there's just not really, I love the title of your podcast, Still No Plan, because there isn't really like this roadmap for us to follow. Granted, you can, you know, take certain steps in school, get the job that you're quote unquote supposed to get, but there's no like guide for life, right? So like at those ages, we're trying things out, we're trying to figure things out and everything does really feel so big and monumental. And if you've been struggling with mental health issues, oftentimes you don't know the alternative. So I do think age is a really big factor as we talk about these things. And so is gender. I completely agree. I feel very lucky within society, blessed within society to have grown up, identify as a woman. I was socialized, you know, as a little girl growing up to talk about my feelings, not within my family, but like with, you know, friends primarily, and taught that it's okay to, and encouraged to express my emotion. Um, I think with the majority of young men, they grow up with a different, they grow up differently, they're socialized differently. And Oftentimes, that looks like being told implicitly and explicitly not to express their feelings, to be strong, to figure things out. And a lot of times with mental health, that's very counterproductive. You know, like those are the silence is going to, the encouragement of silence is going to keep them from getting the help they need, or even from like connecting with friends about these things so that they feel less alone. And that I think we see even on social media. So when uh, we look at trying to share this message with young men, one thing I've noticed that on Instagram, a lot of the mental health posts have design elements that are typically considered more feminine, have content that might speak more to a young woman than uh, someone of another gender. And it definitely was a challenge starting out to try and cater to the larger audience of, you know, all genders. One thing that we really looked at starting out was our language. We looked at design elements. So trying to keep things in, trying to keep away from maybe like the flowery backgrounds or more like quote unquote, feminine fonts and type faces. But that was really hard. And I think we've been really fortunate to have, you know, close support from all genders as we've kind of developed and expanded to kind of help us reach young men from like the very beginning, or at least that's been our goal. Because young men do, men do have higher rates of suicide. They have, I forget the other stats, but like mental health, isn't just something that affects the people who are talking about it, who are more frequently girls and women. Um, it does affect everybody. And uh, it's important for resources and messages that it's okay to open up, to talk about things. It's important for those messages to reach everybody. I have a few points on this. 
first to the age point. I think one of the things for me when I was really deep in my depression and was having kind of suicidal thoughts was the feeling of, which is kind of funny looking back on it now, feeling of college being so like final and like, you're like, well, I grew up and now I'm still feeling these things, but like, I'm an adult. My life is as, as it's going to be forever. And I still feel this way. And so I think that furthers that thought that you were saying, like, you don't see the other option because you're like, well, now I'm on this path that is my life path. And I still feel this way. And like, is this going to, how it's going to be forever, which now I'm like, oh my God, there's so much that happens. Like even in the (laughs) one year after you graduate that like changes your life entirely. So I think that's such a great point. Um, And then with men and creating a more gender inclusive conversation, one thing the Scooty Fund has done that I think is really incredible and probably one of your like more iconic successful programs is the Wednesday Wellness Warriors. And I think a big part of that is just having peers have these conversations. Um, I was just listening to a podcast and someone said, when you're looking on social media, you're comparing your own insides to other people's outsides. And I love that so much, but it reminds me of, you know, with those Wednesday warriors, which for people who are listening is a kind of social media takeover on Wednesday. Uh, the Scooty fund will have like a host and they'll kind of go through their day and talk about how their mental health affects them in their day to day. But it's often young people. And a lot of times you guys do a great job of getting men on there. And I think that is such a great way to kickstart the conversation because it has to come from people's peers. And I just think that that program is incredible. And I kind of, I'd love to hear how you started that and like what your thought behind that whole program and how it's been going. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really great point about comparing our insides to other people's outsides. And I think that carries over even beyond social media, you know, like we're aware of what we're thinking and feeling constantly the only thing that we're receiving from other people, unless we're asking them about their thoughts and their feelings, is their behavior. So we are constantly seeing only what other people are presenting to the world, um, you know, their behavior, their actions, while we are constantly aware of what we're feeling and thinking internally, which is not a fair comparison. And I do, I would agree, well, the wellness warriors that we do every Wednesday has probably been... Um, one of the programs that I've been most pleased about with the Scooty Fund. And that was really kickstarted by my co-founder, Tara. She came up with this idea of having people just talk about their experiences with mental health every Wednesday and kind of model that we can do that, that it's okay, that we can share these things. And what it's kind of become is a program that does promote talking about these things. And it does allow uh, people to see, you know, real life models talking about their own experiences, and a way to share resources about different, you know, like, subjects related to mental health. And it's been, it's been challenging, or it was challenging at first to find people who were willing to open up in that way and share so publicly about their own challenging experiences. And it was especially challenging to find men because I do think that the stigma is very real. So that was a really big lift at the beginning, but I think our team has done an amazing job developing that program and um, continuing to find 
people who are willing to honestly open up about like, this has been my experience. This is what's helped me. This is what's been really hard. Find people from all genders who are willing to do that. Because I think that I'm a big believer in leading by example, big proponent of modeling as a teaching kind of style or a way, I guess, of change. I think it's been really powerful for me to hear these people sharing about their own experiences with mental health and hopefully a powerful experience for others or, you know, a a changing experience and noticeable experience for others. So, yeah, I mean, it's been incredible to see and like, I know for a while it was kind of within your network, which was a lot of the Merce Island people. So um, it was a lot of people that I knew personally. And it is crazy. Even when you're really close with someone, you don't necessarily know what they're going through or how they're feeling. And so it was really incredible to see that. Um, And I think, yeah, I think especially in like fraternity culture and kind of like that brotherhood culture, it only takes a few people to really create a ripple effect and a change in that community. Like I really think it takes a few kind of key leader men to start talking about these topics for it to become, you know, appropriate. And I think I saw that with Will. I I did not know Will personally, but I knew a lot of people who knew him personally. And I saw a trickle down effect of like the way the the men directly impacted by Will's death talk about mental health and were willing to open up about mental health was completely different than I think they were prior to that happening. And so it is really important. And it really, I do think it's like making huge waves in that community. Um, I'd love to touch on another thing that you kind of talked about in the beginning, which was when Will died, you were convinced it was a party death, which is so makes complete sense. And I think it's really common in college when Autumn and I were in college, there was like one semester where there was like four or five and it was really crazy. I mean, we went to a giant party school, but I would love to kind of get to like party culture and mental health. And also one thing that I feel strongly by is like, those are still mental health crises when people die from a party related death. And I think it doesn't need to be treated exactly as a suicide, but it can be treated similarly because personally When I got, I would say, into my riskiest behavior with party culture, it was when I was in my lowest place mentally, and people need to talk about that more. I think it really quickly becomes a conversation about drugs and alcohol and does not become a conversation about the root causes. So I would love, like, if through your experience with the Scooty Fund in this younger community, like, what have you seen with party culture? What are your thoughts on that and mental health? We can just kind of get into that conversation. Yes, Jordan, I love that. That's Um, amazing. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) very relevant. I heard a term a while back, and this term was deaths of despair. And it basically covered the gamut of like party-related deaths, suicide, overdoses, basically these deaths that are caused by typically someone being at such a point of despair that they're either using drugs and alcohol to an extreme level or they are willing to end their own lives, but basically just being at this point of despair. And I think that is so relevant. I think for me, I was very big. Well, I was very involved in party culture for many years. Um, I've been sober for three years now, just because it kind of reached a point that I wasn't 
able to be effective in my life without, uh, I wasn't able to be effective in my life period. Um, and I was relying on drugs and alcohol to initially to cope with my emotions. And then it just becomes this kind of spiral where I got stuck, chemically dependent, etc. But I really do think that, you know, drugs and alcohol and partying have this veneer of fun and joy, connection, etc. And what people are often doing in those cases is really like escaping from their normal day to day life. And I think that's very much or it, it can often be used as a coping mechanism in the same way that food can be used as a coping mechanism in terms of eating disorders. And with drugs and alcohol, I think the danger there is that because it's a chemical that you're putting into your body because they're affecting your brain, oftentimes it takes you even lower. When people are engaging in that kind of riskier party behavior, oftentimes it does work to cope with whatever they're going through, right? Like they do successfully have a really fun night. They can escape from whatever's going on that they want to escape from, whether that's consciously or, um, I don't want to say subconsciously, but whether that's, uh, within their awareness or not, but it works. And I think because it works, it's something that can be habit forming and can become people's kind of primary way of coping. And so it's like, okay, if I can, you know, escape and go crazy this, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, like, that's what I'm gonna do. That feels good to me. And a few months, a few years down the line, if that behavior is still going on, if life has gotten harder, if, you know, regular day-to-day life has become more challenging to cope with, that party behavior only increases. And um, again, because there's the chemical component, because there these chemicals affect your brain, that can lead to increased depression, anxiety, it can lead to chemical dependence, addiction, kind of all of these things. So it like, it just, it's a spiral. And um, it's one that I have firsthand experience with, and that I think a lot of people within our generation have experienced. I know a large number of people from my graduating class in high school are sober now, not, yes, by choice, but not because they just disengaged from that culture because it reached a point where they felt they had to be sober within their lives to continue their lives. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's a really big issue. I think it's very, I think it's completely within the realm of mental health. And I think it is something that unfortunately our generation, I don't want to say needs to take seriously, but I think our generation would benefit from greater intention around those behaviors and more awareness about, you know, where some of these behaviors are stemming from and what alternatives could look like. Mm -hmm. Because I think in the same way we're kind of talking about not really knowing an alternative to feeling hopeless, isolated, depressed, anxious, whatever the mental health kind of experience is, I don't think there are a lot of alternatives presented to partying, at least that was my experience. And quitting drinking was really hard because it's like this social thing that we do together. But yeah, I, I think that I think that our generation has 
experience that pretty acutely. And I think it definitely falls within the realm of mental health. Yeah, I think that's such a good point you bring up, Jordan. I'm really glad you spun in a mental health context too, because (laughs) I feel like one, yes, drinking can be a coping mechanism. And in the short term, in the night, it can be a really good coping mechanism. But in the long run, it's actually the shittiest coping mechanism ever. Like I had a psychiatrist appointment a few years ago. And he was like, yeah, nicotine and alcohol are great for like that moment. And he's like, but in the long run, it's a perpetuating cycle. Like I have been kind of cutting back on drinking intentionally, not intentionally kind of this whole year. And um, this last weekend I drank Friday and Saturday, like not crazy, maybe like three or four drinks. But um, on Wednesday and Thursday, I was feeling so depressed for no reason. I haven't had like any feeling of depression in over a year. And I was just like crying in my bed. Like, I don't even want to take my makeup off or brush my teeth. Like, I just want to go to sleep with the lights on, (laughs) like that kind of depression. And I was like, what is happening? I haven't felt this in so long. I do all the things. I work out. I eat healthy. I don't understand what is different. Like, what I, I don't know what I did different. And then I was like, whoa, that's the most I've drank in a weekend in a long time. And it's like clockwork, like four days later, I'm feeling really a lot lower than usual. And then it makes me on Friday, want to have a drink even more because I'm like, oh, I had a long week. I had a bad week. Like it is just such, I think people, because it's so ingrained in our society, it's not talked about how addicting it really is. I think people don't realize that. And um, yeah, in, in college, I feel like there's no other answer. Like that was the culture. Like that is what you do. So that kind of continues outside of college. Like we were saying earlier, there's no roadmap. And that's not just with like general life. That's also with like social life. Like there is no roadmap on what should we do on the weekends? Because all you did on the weekends for the last four years was drink. And now Mm -hmm. it's like, what do we do on the weekends? Which is also comes back to why Jordan and I started this podcast because we're like, we want to live intentionally. How do we do that? Like (laughs) what is, what, I just feel like it's all interlinked so much. And I don't think that alcohol comes up. And I also wanted to say that in part of like the despair thing with drinking, I feel like in college when I saw people like that who were like known for blacking out, I just didn't think anything twice of it. I was like, oh yeah, they just like drink a lot, whatever. But now when I see people who are who are doing that still, I'm like, I think it's actually, I think they're really struggling. Like I don't know them, but I just feel like to feel like you have to drink that much, like what are you running from? I don't mm-hmm. think when you get that drunk, you don't remember what you're doing. You're not like, oh, I'm having so much fun. This is awesome. Like, I don't, I think a lot of times you're running from something else. And so uh, I think it all comes back to intention too. Like, what is your intention with this drink? Are you having a drink to be a little more social or are you like doing it to forget? But yeah, I'm glad that we're bringing all this up because alcohol and mental health is a really, really slippery slope and it's really hard to escape it. I think another point like that both of you just made is kind of about how when you're in college, your community is so important to your mental health, but that community can also be perpetuating that culture. And that's how I felt for four years of like, I recognize that my drinking was detrimental to my mental health for all four years of college. But I also was like, okay, and then what? I'm going to stop drinking and have no friends. And then I'm going to be alone and I'm going to be depressed and alone. And maybe I'll be a little bit less depressed, but maybe I won't because I also know that I'm on antidepressants and I was depressed before I started drinking. And so there's like 
this second layer of like the thing that is supposed to be helping you is also hurting you. And I think that's one of the biggest struggles. Like I loved Greek life. I loved the friends I made. It was so important for me at a giant school to have that community. Like, oh my God, Autumn and I are best friends because of Greek life. There's so many incredible things about Greek life. But at the same time, there are so many toxic things about Greek life. And that is kind of one of the like mental struggles I have with it where I'm like, if I wasn't so ingrained in Greek culture, I potentially could have like figured these things out sooner because I wouldn't have felt like if I quit drinking, I was going to lose my entire community. And I think that's like a huge part of it, especially in college. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very real and honest analysis of like what it is, you know, with any community or culture you're in, the it would be great if we could just think of like cherry picking the things we like and, you know, like getting rid of the rest, you know, like I really like community. I feel like drinking is hurting me. So I'm going to kick that one out. But when we're in it, when we're in a culture, in a community, it, it doesn't necessarily always function that way. So I think that can, it can be really hard because we are social beings. We do need community um, and we need relationships and, that adds a whole nother layer of challenge to kind of navigating through things. That kind of leads me to another question I have for you in starting the Scooty Fund that is like kind of building a community to talk about mental health. But I also want to know on the other side, like has, has that been hard for you? Like maintaining a nonprofit with your mental health? Like how is that kind of how the journey is kind of intertwined? And also like, how do you continue if you're having a bad mental health day or week or month, like how do you find the motivation to continue to put effort into this? Cause I think that that can be really, really tough. <laughs> That's a great question and something I'm still learning. <laughs> so like, like I kind of mentioned, I was, my mental health was really poor. Like in hindsight, I would label it as really poor when I started the Scooty Fund. Um, and that was a year after my brother had died. I had kind of, I had kind of stopped thinking that like, I had stopped caring about my life because it was just like this huge shock, a huge loss and kind of threw me off balance. Like if I couldn't see this coming with the person who I feel closest to, you know, like what else have I been just completely wrong about my whole life? Like what matters? And my answer mm -hmm. to that at the time fueled by like grief and countless other factors was honestly like nothing really. So starting the Scooty Fund was really good for me. And about a year after starting it was when I would say I kind of hit my quote unquote bottom in terms of partying. I was still kind of struggling with an eating disorder, just like very lost and just trying to like survive each day. You know, like there was no joy in my life, even though I still was having quote unquote fun and like being happy. There was no real like meaning or joy that I was finding that I was experiencing in my life. So a year after starting the Scooty Fund, I ended up going to inpatient treatment for about a month. And at that point, I think, so backing up, I think starting the Scooty Fund was really, really helpful to getting me to that point. And yes, it was kind of hard to juggle, but it also gave me something productive that I felt that I could focus on and derive meaning from. So a year into that, I ended up going to treatment, got out, 
kind of went back to my normal life. I continued working at the same place, continued with the Scooty Fund. And a few months later, I applied for and got into grad school. So I was doing grad school full-time as a student, working full-time, running the Scooty Fund. And then for a while, I thought I might want to get my PhD. So I was doing, yeah, assistant research position um, with the University of Washington. And even though all of those things were super meaningful to me, I had begun to find meaning in my daily life. I was experiencing joy, connection, kind of all of those things that I wanted to experience. It was also very, very hard to kind of juggle everything. And I definitely still had low mental health days. I wasn't resting enough to feel rested and like, you know, I didn't feel like I was able to necessarily give my all to any one thing. Kind of going through that and feeling that way, I have learned to pay attention to how I'm feeling mentally, physically, emotionally. I realized that I need to take a step back from certain things. So I think life is a constant learning process. I stopped doing the assistant research position. I took fewer classes these past few semesters. I've been super blessed in that my work, my company has let me work four days a week instead of five, which has been a huge shift. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. And I've actually kind of stepped back from operations at the Scooty Fund. Just kind of like backing off everything in my life has been super wonderful. It's been so great for me. So I think there have definitely been like positive aspects of starting the Scooty Fund and being so involved. And there has been burnout and it has been harder to maintain that motivation kind of the more, the longer that that high level of engagement has lasted. But I do think that, you know, like we can readjust in life and there will be periods of adjustment, of readjustment. Thing is, you know, constant. Like there may come a time when I'm like, you know, this is too much time on my hands. I'm getting kind of bored. I want to revamp things. I want to start something new or yeah. So long-winded way of saying that um, I think there have been a ton of positives for me in starting the Scooty Fund. And there's been a lot of learning that goes around what level of engagement and time management. Mm -hmm. I have kind of two follow-up questions, but they're kind of on different topics. So the first one, each week with the Scooty Fund, when... Did you always have like a set, like I have to do this this week, like post on Instagram three times and do this and do this? Like, was it always kind of ironed out for you? Or were you kind of like, I'm going to get to what I can this week. And if I can do more, that's great. And if I don't, if I, you know, like how much structure was there in it for you? And then secondly, I would love to kind of, if you're comfortable, go into like the inpatient treatment, what that looked like, how long you were there for and what, how do you even find a program to go to? I feel like a lot of programs I've heard mixed things, like some can be really meaningful and like really impactful, but some can be almost like worse and like more cold than real life even is and more isolating. So I would love to know kind of more about that too. Yeah. Um, so starting with the structure of the Scooty Fund, that is something we definitely developed over time. One thing that's been really helpful is having Tara as my co-founder and kind of partner in everything. I think she and I have very different strengths. She is much more detail-oriented and much more comfortable with structure. 
um, and desire structure a lot more than I think I do. Um, but that's also been something really important for us to implement. In the beginning, we were not posting X number of times per week. We didn't really have a checklist or a to-do list. And um, Tara really took charge of our social media and kind of created that structure. And I think from my perspective, that's been really great. We have a wonderful team and it's allowed me and I think her to kind of step back a little bit and say like, okay, here are the parameters. If someone wants to do that, that's really great. We don't need to be constantly kind of like there and like, oh, do we post today? Do we not post today? And like mm-hmm. answering these questions as they come up, we have them all answered. Everything's laid out. We can take a step back. But that was definitely something that developed after we started the Scooty Fund. We had a lot of like learning to do, didn't know much about any of these kind of, well, Tara was great on Instagram, but Beyond that, like hadn't really engaged with any of these platforms or any of the organizations we ended up partnering with before. So I've been a huge, I've been very grateful that Tara is so structured and has brought that to the organization because I think that's really helped run better. In terms of inpatient treatment, that was probably the hardest thing that I've ever done. Not necessarily in terms of like being there. I found the programming to just be like a really nice environment, nice day. You know, like we would wake up, we would go get breakfast. We might have some like lecture, have lunch, have a free afternoon. Like the one I went to had a pool, yoga, like all this stuff. So, you know, like being there, it's it's comfortable. But working up to the decision to go was really, really hard. And I I had been seeing a therapist since uh, a little bit before Will died. So grateful that I started when I did because she was like very much there with me as I was going through some really hard times. And I'd asked her before, like, oh, do you think I should go to rehab? Because I knew my drinking was excessive. I knew that, you know, my drug use partying was more than I think I was taught to feel comfortable with. And she would ask me, why do you want to go? And historically, my answer had always been like, oh, I just want a break from life. Like, I just want somewhere where I can kind of just like check out and like, chill for a little bit. (laughs) And she's like, that's not what rehab is. So if that's why you're going, you're not going to find that there. <laughs> She's like, you need a vacation. Yeah, exactly. I just chill. Like, go to Hawaii, go do something else. Like, yeah. Um, and then finally, you know, I, I got a DUI and I went in to see her and I was distraught. I was an emotional mess. And I think she asked me this time, like, do you want to stop drinking? And I said, yes. And she asked if I thought I could do it on my own. And I said, no. And she asked if I'd be open to going to inpatient treatment. And it was really hard, but I was, I was open to it. And so I told her that. And she identified two treatment facilities for me that would take my insurance and that she had heard really positive feedback about. So for me, that decision was really helped along, or I was really helped with that decision by my therapist. But I would definitely recommend asking people who 
either have experience within the field of mental health, so like a therapist or, you know, a drug alcohol counselor, or asking people who have like gone through the experience themselves. Because there is a wide range of treatment facilities. You're right, there is kind of the almost jail-like facility where you are there to basically like detox. I don't know what else is in their programming, but it is a really kind of harsh experience. Um, And then there are the treatment facilities that have yoga and allow you to go for hikes or like, you know, do what you want to with your days and still give you the mental health health that you need and the foundation for sobriety, but maybe don't do it in quite a um, harsh of a manner. Yeah, it was really hard. I would advise asking people if you're looking for a recommendation. It's definitely, for me, it was the hardest thing I've ever done and probably the greatest gift that I've ever given myself. And that obviously I had a lot of support going into it. So I think of it as, you know, other people helping me get to that step, but it's been the greatest gift in my life. Yeah, I think it's so important to have, I mean, people with, people need different things, obviously. So you can't make any blanket statements here. Um, I have been reevaluating my relationship with alcohol since New Year's, basically. I did like 100 days sober. I basically haven't drank all year. And I personally like didn't need a program. I just kind of am stubborn and like decided to do it and stuck with it and like read a bunch of books about it. But I do think if I were to go into a program, the program like what you went through is so beneficial because kind of what you're saying with like the despair stuff. If you go into a program that like makes your life miserable while you're getting sober, you're going to associate your sobriety with misery. And like, I think that has been so important for me. And I get, a, I, I post on TikTok about this and like, I get a lot of comments on TikTok of people being like, my life is boring because I'm not drinking. And it's like, well, are you doing anything else? Like, yeah, if you sit in your room and do nothing and you used to go out every weekend and hang out with your friends four days a week, and now you're sitting alone in your room sober, like it's going to feel miserable. But is it because there's no alcohol or is it because you're not doing anything fun? And so I, I love that your program was like that because it makes it so much less intimidating and also like creates your first sober experiences as being like positive experiences and like a positive, I think that's so important to like have joy and happiness while you're going through the sobriety process. So that sounds amazing. Um, one more thing I would love to get into on this episode is, and I'm sure we could talk about this for like a whole hour in itself. So we'll kind of try and keep it truncated, but I would love to know about your journey with grief. I think that's a very unique experience for especially people who are young. One of my best friends lost her brother at a young age and it was very hard for me as a friend to understand how to be there for her. And I still don't think I can, and I just do my best, but I would love to hear kind of how your grief journey went and also like what were the tools and things that helped you kind of, I don't think it's something you overcome, but start to live with and function with. Yeah. Um, for me, you're very right. It has not been something to overcome, but rather just something to kind of incorporate into my life. Um, I know that loss will always be there and I'll always feel it, or I assume I always will. Um, and it has been strange going through that experience as a young person. I think uh, for me, 
I've had, you know, a couple best friends or who were best friends at the time, not really understand how to show up. And I think that, um, I mean, probably none of my friends knew how to show up, but there were ones who did just, you know, show up that they were there. Um, a few of my friends like flew up to Seattle after it happened where we had my brother's memorial and they were just there with me. Um, you know, getting back into my normal life, just having like friends come towards me rather than kind of step away because they feel uncomfortable has been really important. Yeah. And just having that community has been huge in terms of friends there. Like I mentioned, there were some who I know felt discomfort kind of, um, holding that space for grief for me. And I completely understand that, like no blame there whatsoever. It's, it's not something that we're accustomed to dealing with when we're this age, but they, you know, their reaction was one of like, I had one friend who wanted to get coffee after my brother died. And I was, it was shortly after I was in this really heavy space and instead of kind of checking in and like asking how I'm doing, really asking how my family's doing, what am I doing to cope? How am I taking care of myself? You know, just kind of those like, like questions that I would have liked to be asked. The conversation really focused on her. And I think like her, the guy she was kind of dating at the time, and it just felt like very distant. And uh, she did, you know, kind of distance herself after that point. And again, no blame at all. I think that's a very natural reaction. But I guess what I'm getting at is that even if like you don't know how to show up for someone, just being there physically, emotionally, being there for them is really, I think, the most significant way you can help. Or it was how it worked for me. Another thing was therapy was really important. Friends who showed up, therapy. And then in hindsight, I really wish I had practice stronger, better self-care. I wish I had taken more time off of work. I wish I had really embraced, you know, sleep routine. I wish I had been feeding my body better, exercising, kind of just those little things that really help help us in any situation kind of have uh, more stable and more positive or feeling better emotions. Because I think that would have been really helpful. And that's one thing that since I've got sober, gotten sober, I've really put into practice. And so like getting enough sleep every night, eating enough throughout the day, connecting with others, trying to go for a walk every day. So like nothing too intense, but just like practicing self-care. Those three are probably the biggest things that have helped me over time. It's definitely been something that I've just kind of accepted goes on in my life and in my head. There are some days that I feel more sad about the loss than others. Some days at this point, like, I think I still think about my brother every day, but some days it's just like a passing thought. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is like, it's not as we've heard, and I hope others have heard like grief isn't a linear process. One thing that I have noticed that I don't think I've really heard talked about is that I miss my brother the most when I'm feeling lonely. You know, like, because he's someone who I felt like I could call and he wouldn't judge me, you know, like, 
I could show up exactly how I am, where I am. And he would just like, let me be me, I guess. And I do have people in my life who do that. And I'm so grateful for them. But he was kind of just that like, he was like a part of me in that way. And so I think when I've mm-hmm. been feeling lonely or really down about other things in my life, it's kind of just a situation where it's like, I really wish that I could call him. I wish we could hang out. I wish he was here. And those thoughts really just kind of like loop. And I noticed myself missing him so, so much, even, yeah, just so deeply. So yeah, I think for me, to summarize, grief has definitely been a process, not a linear one. Having really good friendships, close friendships has helped. Therapy has helped. Practicing self-care, once I did start practicing self-care, really helped. And learning that, you know, like my triggers for experiencing more acute grief are loneliness, are like sadness, are feeling overwhelmed. And just being aware that that happens for me still and kind of accepting that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like also when you're talking about how you wish you would have done more self-care when you were like in the thick of the grief earlier, I feel like it's that is so much easier said than done though. <laughs> like I listen to these podcasts all the time and people are like, it's simple. Get outside, move your body. But when your mental health is bad, that is not simple. And that is really hard to do. If you are in a low point, taking yourself for a walk, doing laundry, making yourself healthy meals, like that can be the hardest thing. And I think some of that is also where you need your, where you need friends to step in and like force you to go on a walk with them or drop off some like home cooked meals for you. And when you guys were younger, when it, when it happened, I feel like people don't have like the forethought to really take those steps and they're not like cognizant enough. And so I feel like, like you said, it is hard to blame the friends because they were so young. And also I think some people don't want to say the wrong thing. And so they would rather just distance themselves than say the wrong thing. And so, mm-hmm. but almost it's like, I'd rather you be here and say the wrong thing than not be here at all. <laughs> like to, to see the effort yes. uh, would be better than for you to disappear. I'd rather me be offended by one thing you say than like you leave my life and like not be there to support at all, you know? But I just think it's so, I don't know, it's so challenging, especially at like what, 21, 22 for like people to be there for you in the right way. Like, I don't know. People are so self-absorbed, especially younger, self-absorbed. And like, it's hard. (laughs) People also can't even be there for themselves. Like I didn't even know how to cook a meal. (laughs) Like like you, (laughs) I was, I mean, anyone was like still learning self-care for themselves. But I do think that's what I always say about getting a dog and why dogs help with your mental health. I was like, they actually make a lot of elements of my mental health way worse because it's so stressful to have to take care of another being. But the one thing they do is make me get outside no matter how depressed I am. I'm like, I have to take my dog out. And it's like, it is game changing. Um, And I think self-care and mental health is an interesting conversation because one, you don't want to diminish like, oh, you can cure your depression with like a walk in the sunshine. But at the same time, it helps so much. And I think, and I think this is happening, but there is 
and needs to be more conversations about like holistic mental health practice. Like, yes, go for a walk and wash your face. That will help tons, but also go to a therapist and get on antidepressants because that will help a lot (laughs) as well. I would love to know, um, kind of a last question. What is there a specific type of therapy that worked best for you? Or like, have you tried different kinds of therapy? Um, and like, how did those go? Yeah. Um, I have been to a few different therapists, um, starting when I think I was 17 and first kind of tried to start addressing my eating disorder. Um, and I don't remember what kind of model of therapy she practiced, but it didn't work for me at the time, probably also because I didn't really want to be there. Um, and then during college, I saw the drug and alcohol counselor on and off. Also, not because I wanted to be there, um, but uh, I had gotten in trouble for other reasons. And um, then the therapist that I've been with for the past over five years uh, has been a practitioner of dialectical behavior therapy, which is basically cognitive behavioral therapy. So looking at how our thoughts, our emotions, and our actions are kind of linked together and trying to break certain patterns um, with an element of mindfulness. Um, And that has really, really worked for me. I think some of the things that are almost like taught in dialectical behavioral therapy. It's a lot more of like a structured format and does feel like learning skills, you know, half the time, like talking about my own issues, like working through them and then learning just general life skills. Uh, That model has really worked for me. Um, It's focuses on emotion regulation. Um, So, you know, like, how do I deal with really strong emotions and how do I regulate my kind of existence every day? Um, let's see what else, uh, relationships, um, and relationship efficacy. So how do I ask for my needs and how do I set boundaries? How do I determine when a relationship is more important or when a goal is more important? Um, so it kind of teaches lessons around that, uh, and there are a few other like modules of this therapy. And I think just getting those general life skills has been really huge because beforehand, I don't think I really knew how to like conceptualize of my like emotional experiences. And I was very self-critical um, kind of extremist thinking. So like, like an example, when I would be drinking, it would be like, I'm not going to drink tonight. Or like, oh, I had a drink with dinner. I guess I'm going like all out, like that kind of all or nothing thinking. Um, and then just like the coping behaviors that I was doing to kind of deal with my strong emotions, like those were, obviously not affecting my life well. So dialectical behavioral therapy gave me tools to kind of deal with all of that and to change the way that I think. Um, I know different models of therapy work really well for different people. So for me, it was definitely that process of kind of um, going to different therapists, 
over years feeling like this doesn't work for me. This doesn't work for me. I don't want to be here. And then even when I started with my current therapist, I didn't really want to be there, but I respected her so much. And turns out the model really worked for me, but I just kept on going back and I still meet with her every week. And it's not necessarily, it's very different from when I first started, but it's been for me, like a very, very positive element in my life and something that um, I don't foresee myself ever wanting to give up. Uh, Who knows Mm -hmm. what my therapist thinks, but I would love for that relationship (laughs) just to keep going forever. So, I think that's something that's really important too, is like relationship patient, like chemistry. You're not going to like vibe with every therapist. It's honestly hard to find a good therapist. I've seen more bad therapists than I have good therapists. And it's not even bad, but like you guys need to have a chemistry to like be impactful. And also you kind of need to want to be there. I think when you're being forced to be there, that definitely you're not, you're in one of your out the other sort of thing, but it is hard to find a good therapist. And we could have a whole episode on how to date a therapist and, you know, how many sessions to give until you like figure it out, like finding a therapist, that could be a whole episode on its own. But, um, I don't know, just to wrap up, I would love if you could maybe give a list of like your top resources for people who maybe can't afford therapy, just like online or maybe call centers that if you have any off the top of your head that you recommend. And then you could like pimp out the Scooty Fund and your own like personal Instagrams or whatever, where we where can we find more of the Scooty Fund or more content from you? Yeah. Um, I mean, the suicide hotline, I've heard Mick, to be perfectly honest, I've heard mixed things about from when people have called the suicide hotline, but I would still highly recommend calling if you're in a state of despair. Um, I would really encourage people to uh, provide spaces of vulnerability to their friends and to rely on their friends, reach out to their friends if they are going through something. Um, and again, I would encourage people to practice self-care through sleep, getting outside, exercising, eating well, um, maintaining close relationships. I think all of that, like if you're doing that, um, is a really great start to helping your mental health. Um, In terms of, I guess, like things you can go to uh, if you don't want to go to therapy, I've heard the guy I'm dating practices yoga a lot. Um, and for him, that's a very therapeutic practice. So I would encourage looking into kind of alternative um, ways of quote unquote healing the mind and body. Um, I think there are a lot of different kind of ways that you can get to that same idea that don't necessarily involve going through therapy uh, or through looking through at it through a psychology lens. Um, so exploring those options and seeing what might feel right for you. If you do want to go to therapy, which I again, highly recommend as well. Um, I think, uh, starting with psychology today could be, can be a great place to start. They have like a therapist locator that you can fill in, um, your location. I think your, uh, insurance provider, if you have one, um, so that can be a good place to start talking to friends, talking to family, talking to others who may um, have recommendations uh, is also great. I know friends have come to me and asked for recommendations. 
Um, I highly recommend my therapist, but there's like a conflict of interest for her meeting with my friend. <laughs> she's been able to give recommendations of like, these are other therapists who I really respect and think are great. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number of quote unquote self-help books uh, that I can't think of any ones that have really spoken to me off the top of my head, but those have been a huge part of my journey, just reading, learning more, um, developing my sense of spirituality even. So there are so many things you can do, I think, for your mental health. I would also say follow the Scooty Fund Uh, (laughs) on Instagram. We are at the Scooty Fund. (laughs) So T-H-E-B. Scooty, S-C-O-O-T-Y, fund. You can also find us online at scootyfund.org. If you ever want to continue this conversation with me, you can find me on Instagram at KCT23. That's K-A-S-E-Y-T-2-3. Yeah. Or you can reach out to Autumn and Jordan, and I'm sure they can hook you up. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This has been just such an incredible and super important conversation. And we're we're excited to have this to kick off Mental Health Awareness Month. And yeah, everyone check out the Scooty Fund. It's an incredible resource. And I love everything you guys are doing. So good job in that space. Thank you. And thank you so much for inviting me on. It was really great talking with you both. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed making it. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Still No Plan Pod. See you, See next, you next Wednesday. Wednesday. Woohoo!